0: Welcome to Lay of the Brand, a podcast where we sit down with the experts on the latest innovations in marketing, creative and PR, and the way these disciplines are revolutionizing how the tech industry communicates and sells to the world. I'm Merit Group senior strategist Richard Sheehy, and this time on Leia the Brand, we hit the road for a special panel discussion recorded at George Mason University on reputation management in the tech industry, challenges and strategies. Before an audience of students and practitioners, I had the pleasure of moderating the panel that included my Merit Group colleague Shahed Ahmed, along with NPR national news anchor Jack Spear and Microsoft's Tanya Klaus. Let's listen in as Jack Spear kicked off the discussion with some remarks geared toward the students in the room about how perceptions on technology differ across generations
1: so you guys are all born digitals right so i wasn't a born digital so in 1997 the world was starting to go from you know black and white to color right analog to digital it was revolutionary to be sure um It was a little bit disorienting, obviously, for people who were working on IBM Selectric typewriters, who were suddenly working on, you know, Tandy Radio Shack computers, who were suddenly working on, you know, up, up, up. And I think there was a revolution in terms of the speed at which information could be disseminated, you know I, I always joke with my daughter who's a student at Pitt, you know she'll say things to me and I said, you know I say, well the, those were simpler times and and I mean in some ways they were, or she'll say that to me actually um, and in some ways they were simpler times, but they were also and they were slower times, and the information, the news business was was different washington dc was a small town in 1997 in my estimation it is not a small town anymore george mason was a sleepy commuter college it is not a sleepy commuter college anymore Um, and that that has all changed digital disruption has done a lot of that you know we talk about the changes that have happened just the changes in my industry have been huge the changes in i'm sure your respective industries, public relations, and and certainly Microsoft was at the vanguard of that change, right? I mean, they were one of the earliest big tech companies. So there's just been a revolutionary sea change in how that's affected everyone's lives. And when you grow up with it, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But when you start from another place and go through it and go through the, the iterations of how it was built, it, it's it's kind of amazing when you really look back at it.
0: So when you go in the newsroom and back then and you'd be looking for adjectives or hearing or reading about stories like it, was it what were some of what were some of the sentiments back there?
1: I mean the sentiments were we were still covering the news, right? We were just doing it in, in a in a different way. I mean we were hammering it out. I could type 120 words a minute. Hmm now you know who cares now right i could splice tape i care i could edit tape you know with a <laughs> with a razor blade and a splicing <laughs> block right i mean
0: okay but you know what difference well, let me ask what, you this, what, so, what difference does that make well, now i guess well now let me ask you that like when you would be covering a technology story now every story is is sort of the beginning of the tech boom that's what i'm saying there was an excitement there was i mean obviously the news is objective but 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 your sense of, of the underlying sentiment around technology, was there excitement? Was it possibility? Oh, I, was it risk? Was it danger? What, like, where, where was that it, sentiment needle?
1: It, it, was the, it was sort of the new nirvana in some ways, but I don't think everyone understood it, okay? A lot of us didn't really get it. Um, you know, I remember thinking early, early on, I remember thinking, oh, the, the Internet's great, but it's really just like a phone line, right? I mean, seriously, that's what I thought. I thought, well, it comes through a phone line. It's it's just a phone line. You know, it's a way to send information over the telephone. Well, of course, the Internet turned out to be far more fast and encompassing than that but you have to remember that early on that's sort of how it was delivered with a uh, 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 you heard that modem noise right that's it (laughs) well that was it you've got mail i mean and people were like wow you know this is amazing you know i worked with early browsers um i was probably working on the internet as early as you know most journalists and we were dealing with early browsers and and modems and really slow stuff, and we still thought it was amazing and, and it got more amazing as more things got added onto it so yeah, it was an aha moment, I guess, in terms of my business and in terms of, of life, but for you guys, it's not mm-hmm. aha at all i mean it's yeah.
0: Yeah. Ahmed, I want to ask you that same question, because I've also you've you've given guest lectures here at, at Mason. And I know when students have asked you, like, why you, you, you deal in technology, you you yourself have an enthusiasm for it. And, and obviously, if, you know, if that was the first thing you did right out of college. So, so give me that sense of that enthusiasm. And, you know, as you've gone into your career, you still have the enthusiasm. I know that. Uh, but the, but but the underlying uh, the, the 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 background, you know, it's almost like the 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 setting, sentiment setting. For, there's a lot more criticism of it. So talk about that evolution.
2: So Jack painted a really really good picture of the time of the dot com era, right? Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about from my own personal perspective. So like Rich talked about, I moved out to California to join the dot com era, essentially, and that was that was kind of my first job out of college at CNET and out. So for me, it was, uh, you know, I, I kind of I really believe in this idea of the fallacy of the the, the, the moment in time, right? Because if you're looking at the moment in time and you kind of take a step back and you really get much, much greater perspective. So having been in this world for 20 years now, uh, I have much greater perspective than when I did when I first moved out to, to California. But at that point, a couple of things happened. One was wonder, is an adjective because I just I just looked at the change that Jack was describing so well, and I just felt like it's incredible. You know, I didn't I didn't know how it was going to change my life. I didn't know what the internet was going to be about, but I knew something was happening. the The second thing is love. I, I actually fell in love with technology um, when I was out there in California and I was working at CNET and I saw how we were able to communicate with people and. You know message boards and video and things that we take for granted today were, were things that were starting out um, back in 97, 98 and 2000. Um, and so the, from my point of view, I didn't realize what was happening. and I want to talk about this a little bit more rich you know as, as we keep continuing this conversation, but I think we're kind of still in that place. Um, and so I, th- I think there's a lot more change to come. Um, I think we're still kind of in the early innings of what's, what's going to happen. Um, so as you guys kind of, you know, going to going to your jobs, working technology, uh, potentially, uh, I hope you guys feel the same way. I hope you feel wonder and I hope you feel love because I do think, uh, it's going to take a joint effort to address a lot of the challenges that that rich oh, so, so very about.
0: quickly before I get to Tanya, this idea of wonder and love, especially, you know, advising, you know, a new generation, uh, how did you navigate some of the the less flattering stories i mean i'm not going to ask you whether you felt uh I, I mean did did technology ever let you down or did you, were you ever thrown by oh my god i i love this technology but look what look at this privacy issue like how did you incorporate some of the some of the 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 less uh, flattering uh, angles and issues that technology, uh, you know, we hear about today. Yeah, it
2: might be a good time to share my point of view so you guys kind of get a sense of everything else that'll come out of my mouth. Um, but I do believe technology is agnostic. Technology doesn't care about privacy. It doesn't care about, inf- you know, access to people's information. It doesn't care about a lot of the things that the Rich outlined at the beginning. It really about, is about us, it's about how we use and influence technology. So I think the conversation about what do we do with technology and what do we do about privacy, uh, I think it really comes back to looking at ourselves in the mirror. Um, and I think I think we'll you know we'll certainly get into those conversations. But uh, you know I'm I'm still in love with technology. I, f- I feel like it's going to have an m- incredible impact, positive impact in people's lives. But as history has shown us, it can also have a very negative impact on people's lives. Mm -hmm. And it's happened over and over and over. Mm -hmm. Um, So we just have to be prepared, have these conversations to to make sure that, you know, when you guys are out there impacting the world and using technology, uh, you're using it in a way that's, you know, ethical and moral and, you know, supports and and enhances society versus, you know, Mm -hmm. bringing it down in a negative way.
0: Tony Klaus, um, I want to ask the next question to you. Um, because as you, you probably could tell, I sort of set up maybe the the, the framework of the question to the both of them. is almost like a before and after picture or then and now. Um, but for Microsoft, which has been around for quite a long time, um, back in the mid to late 90s was probably more like a during moment for you um, as opposed to before and after. And the reason I say that is... I was still a journalist back then, and I remember at NBC covering the the whole uh, Microsoft antitrust trial that involved Netscape Navigator and whether that could be bundled in. I know that was before your time at the organization, but the organization itself was going through a lot of that challenge, um, including uh, you know the whole CEO behavior thing. There was the Bill Gates's de- deposition, and I and I I mention all of that because. I'm interested in your sense, your perspective from an organization that's got maybe a longer history than a lot of these other technology companies. It's, it's not the, the story arc is not quite linear. Like, Oh, it was, it was great. And then it was, bad. it's been, a, been some ups and downs and your company's yeah. lived through that. So my question is what kind of learnings or lessons or takeaways do you think Microsoft has, has gotten from that, that maybe some of younger companies Um, still have yet to learn now that they're facing scrutiny perhaps for the first time.
3: Yeah, I started with, I left the Hill 99-2000 to move to an agency, actually answered a job in the Washington Post, believe it or not, um, who was looking for someone to work with Microsoft in D.C. on tech policy issues. So it was intellectual property, and then it was still counterfeiting like fake disks that people were counterfeiting, so we would Go after that Microsoft would go after them in court and so on. And privacy was the first um, issue that I, in addition to the intellectual property that I kind of dove into on the agency side for Microsoft, and that was around 2000, um, and also some of the browser wars. So. Microsoft was one of the first companies to actually hire a chief privacy officer. It was a job that didn't exist, mm-hmm. you know, probably before right around 2000, or no one really knew what they did. And so I remember the press release launching, you know, the hiring of the first privacy officer, which now it's such a sleepy thing. Um, and my clients testifying on the hills uh, on the Hill about what the... What do you mean it's
0: a sleepy thing? The,
3: the issue is not a sleepy thing, but it's an expected job, um, Mm -hmm. chief security officer, chief privacy officer. You can build a whole career out of privacy and security now. Mm -hmm. So technology has opened up career paths around, um, policy issues where you can be an expert. Um, and you don't necessarily even have to be a lawyer to be a chief privacy officer. A lot of them are now. Um, but it's, it's an expected, um, thought leadership opportunity for companies. So as companies are young and emerging and even as whether it's Uber or any of the really small tech companies that are just starting, um, they're still grappling with how do the, and, and Facebook obviously like how do we really think generatively around the privacy issue and, we have some history there by school of hard knocks, really, in terms of whether it's, you know, legal battles or 20 years ago sort of being on the vanguard of, like, what it, what are the implications of you holding all of this data on consumers? And um, Mike, when I say we, I, I, I say that as Microsoft, just because I was part of it then, I think my, I should say that they, they, Microsoft kind of learned the hard way, I think, on a lot of things. And I've worked with Brad Smith, who's the chief um, legal officer and president at Microsoft uh, long before he was in that role. But I do think he and some of the executives who have been at the company for a long time really have have evolved and advanced their thinking about um, some of the like ethical and moral frameworks through which you have to view issues, what like privacy and security and artificial intelligence and kind of putting frames together for how do we deal with brave new world, so to speak. And what are the, what are the lens? What is the lens through which, you know, a company needs to think about that, how you advise your customers to think about AI. Um, I think you're right that there's, a neutrality to the technology in and of itself, but there's very there's a lot of ease for it to be used for good or ill and so how do you put those constructs in place essentially and and twenty years ago, that thinking was still very new. I think you know Microsoft and others made mistakes from a privacy perspective and it led to more structure around how to manage data and I was on the Receiving end of like journalists, you know, really hard questions around that. And I think even from a PR perspective, we handle things completely different now, differently now than we did then in terms of response and really knowing what's going on, the way we train our employees and the the training that has to take place at every employee level around customer data and privacy. So there's a maturity there that's happened, I'd say that um, and not that Microsoft is perfect now, like the the issues sort of keep changing, right? And we're dealing with a new pivot on privacy around big data and all of those things. But Mm -hmm. if you, we have the benefit and the history of having the like the framework to put um, a cohesive response in place, just, you know, learning from right. experience.
0: I like that term cohesive um, response because my next question has to do with the, the multifaceted nature of, of technology stories and issues. Um, and, and most in my daily life, uh, Shahad and I, and, and, and my colleagues at the merit group, one of the, 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 light motifs throughout our work, regardless of clients is that there are mult, especially technology is that there are multiple stakeholders. So, there is what consumers and the public care about and think about: their fears, their desires, etc. There, um, there are what regulators are focusing on. Um, you know, the the technology industry is increasingly getting uh, regulated um, in many different ways. Um, there are shareholders, you know, value, um, and then you know there there are larger. Uh, issues of, you know, society or corporate responsibility, greater good. And and that requires sort of almost like a very very strategic communications approach where we have some core consistent messages and an identity, but at the same time we need to sort of really calibrate those messages uh, for these different audiences all in a way where our messages are very targeted but not contradictory. And the reason I sort of set that up is because I have a question for Jack. You know, I think it's a value add that you're, that you're not only a journalist and an educator, but that so much of your journalism has involved business and covering business. And so I'll sort of ask you, like, when, um, let's say, a, a story of a, a huge data breach comes across the NPR newsroom and it lands in your lap and, and you have to go about starting to think about how to cover it. How do, you, how do you dive into that? Because it, a data breach, for instance, is at once a consumer story. It's a business story. Um, depending on the context or the targets or the organizations, it could be a national security story. So how do you navigate or balance all these different elements of, of the same situation from a news perspective?
1: So, I mean, that's a good question. Obviously, that's true of a lot of these stories. and And just... Briefly, to sort of put it into context, early on, I think, in the Internet, when we talked about earlier when I said, okay, we kind of went to to color, I think everybody kind of took a hands-off approach. This includes the government, by the way. Let these people develop their technologies. Let the Internet grow kind of unfettered. Let technology companies be technology companies. Then we had the dot-com bubble burst in, what, 2000-ish. So everybody kind of paused. Then we started up again kind of full-bore, letting tech companies, more or less, there was some Microsoft stuff going on, but more or less we let tech companies go, especially big social media companies. Okay, let's talk about Facebook. That's that's the one that Richard is basically referring to. So Facebook has gone through this thing where everybody gets linked. It creates a global village. Everybody loves everyone. They get to find out what their neighbors are doing and their friends are doing and connect with people. And you guys probably don't use it except to keep in touch with your parents because my kids <laughs> – seriously, my kids are on it, but they could care less about it. But they're on it to see what we're doing. But. What Facebook has done, and Facebook's model obviously works on the aggregation of data, big data, right? We take a lot of information about people, we put it together, we come up with things. Suddenly, we find out that people like the Department of Housing and Urban Development is going after Facebook hard, saying all this data that you do with targeted advertising, targeted real estate stuff is discriminatory because you're picking and choosing people to see ads for houses, and it's just a new version of redlining. That's essentially what they're saying. So when you look at these different challenges, you have a nexus, right, of consumer issues, technology (coughs) issues, regulatory issues. And you also see this, by the way, in the Boeing story, which is a huge story to follow right now and what I'm going to use as an example because not only is this a consumer story, right, it's an airline, it's a technology story because they're looking at software on 737 MAX planes. The planes are grounded, so that's causing financial woes for the airline. So you have this, all these forces that come together, you know, financial, consumer, regulatory. And by the way, with Boeing, they're also saying, hey, should the airlines be able to work with the FAA to help regulate themselves? Mm-hmm. Guess what? Get, that's going to go away. Mm-hmm. I almost guarantee you. So those things all complicate your job as a journalist. So you're looking at all these different things. You're saying, okay, I need to talk to people at the company and find out how long have they been doing this. I need to talk to data security experts and find out what does Facebook really do with my data. I need to talk to um, you know regulators about why you know what they hope Facebook can you know can happen in terms of regulatory controls. So it makes our job as journalists, especially tech journalists, who I have a lot of admiration for, by the way. We have some wonderful tech journalists on the West Coast, Laura Seidel and other people who spend all their time doing this stuff because it is so incredibly complicated. And, you know, I kind of go in and out of it. And as a business correspondent, I covered it. I covered it more probably in the growth phase than maybe where we are now because I did a lot of other things. I covered aviation. I covered automotive industry.
0: So let me stick with that. Because you were a business correspondent and covered all sorts of different industries and sectors. Is it possible to sort of isolate what's just the intangibles about the tech, set, the tech business as opposed to others? Like what's most unique? What sets it apart?
1: Yeah, because when we started covering the tech business, I think we mostly were looking at the financials, right? Is this company going to survive? Do you remember the, the phrase burn rate? Okay. A burn rate was how long is a tech company going to be able to survive losing money? Ascalon. I hear that term every time head looks at my timesheets for our clients. What's our burn rate? Yeah, what's our burn rate? (laughs) How long are these guys? So that's what we were looking at. I was looking at how long are these guys going to be able to survive losing this kind of money? So that's where my head was when I was starting to cover them initially. Then we got into the issue, wait a minute, what are they doing with all this information? And that did not come right away, by the way, because we were still enamored of the industry, enamored of the risk-taking the entrepreneurship, the ability to, to survive when you're losing, you know, tons of money. And, and no, I mean, seriously. And we were like, okay. And then we started to look at privacy, and we were like, oh, wait a minute. This is a whole other, you know, area. And the government kind of came, got heavy into it a little later. So the government's a little late to the party because I think in some ways they were concerned about, you know, killing the goose that laid the golden mm-hmm. egg,
2: right? Yeah, no, I think you touched on it. So, so I, I do agree with you, I, I, and it's and it's the government that's late to the party, but it's also us that that's late to the party. Um, so, you know, as, as you guys as you guys know, so the currency of the digital economy is data, uh, like Jack talked about, and you know, the first in, you know internet revolution we talked about the dot com era, um, that kind of came and went, and this wasn't much of an issue. But the second coming of it are data companies, essentially, companies that you know barter and, and build an economy around your information and my information and, and everybody else's information. Uh, and so I, do, I agree with you, Jack. I, I do believe governments and us, um, we haven't put the mirror up to that story um, quite yet. And it's happening. It's, it's starting to happen. Um, but it's, it's, it's late to the game as it usually is. Uh, but I, you know, I talked to a lot of, a lot of technology CEOs. We obviously consult with a lot of different companies, uh, both startups that are trying to do new things and larger multi-billion dollar companies that are impacting the world today. Um, and, and I think there's a responsibility for technology companies to lead the discussion, to define, you know what that feature looks like um, to be part of the conversation and not simply be you know taken aback by all of this backlash and playing defense, right? Um, and so there there has to be technology companies have to drive the conversation forward, and I think you know Microsoft does a great job of that and and, and others, but some as we've seen have been caught off guard by it uh, and they've been very reactive, uh, and so I think I think that's a that's a key thing that the change that I think we're going to see uh, is that technology companies starting to work more closely uh, with just one example uh, i'll give you guys uh, this was kind of my world last year uh, and a lot of marketing uh, folks is uh, gdpr um, so uh, basically it was this uh, um, you know regulation that popped up in europe and essentially it was around marketing and use of data um, you, know, how, you know how can you use somebody's data do you need to get their permission to get the data and what are the you know, sort of the uh, mechanisms that are in place to make sure that that brokerage um, works to everybody's benefit. Um, and in the U S <laughs> uh, we don't have similar rules quite yet. I, I think, I think it's coming. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's definitely coming. There's been a lot of conversation around it, um, but we were all caught off guard, right? So you know, we collect a lot of information, we send out emails, we're, you know, sending ads on social media, uh, how, how do we do all that business right in the context of, of this regulation um and so I, I feel like we kind of patched a few walls and kind of put you know kind of put put some caulk on some holes but we, we really didn't really solve the problem <laughs> last year um and so i think we're you know we've got a lot to do on that front and again like i said marketers and technology companies can definitely take a safe the lead there
0: You've been listening to a special Lay of the Brand podcast featuring a joint Merit Group and George Mason University panel discussion on reputation management in the tech industry. Lay of the Brand is brought to you by the Merit Group, a strategic communications firm that blends the best of PR, digital marketing, and creative to help our clients tell their stories. Lay of the Brand's executive producer is Melissa Chadwick, Francesca Ella Trash is producer and showrunner, and our assistant producers are Jonathan Schubert and Jessica Chapeau. Graphic design by Kaylee Baumgartner, got a topic or suggestion or want to share feedback with Lay of the Brand, we'd love to hear from you. Just subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your preferred listening platform and leave us a review. Spread the word and tell your friends to like us as well. And to learn more about Lay of the Brand or the Merit Group, visit us online at layofthebrand.com.